This is the podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyze the beat of the changing environment from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I am Audrey Tan. And this is David Fogarty. And our guests today are Melissa Lowe and Eric B, researchers from the National University of Singapore. They are both also observers of international climate change negotiations, and this is the second time they are on the show. Welcome both. Thank you for having us. Thanks and great to be here. So climate change has been a topic on everyone's lips. There has been extreme weather events affecting many parts of the world. Scientists have also come up with numerous reports showing proof that humans are responsible for causing climate change. But we also just heard news that a major climate meeting to be held at the end of this year has met with a few roadblocks. Um, Melissa, you have been an observer of these negotiations for a decade. Can you start by giving us a brief run-through of why the annual United Nations Climate Change Conference is so important? Thanks, Audrey. Yes. So the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP as we call it, stands for the Conference of Parties. It's meeting for its 25th time this year. That's why COP25. So almost 200 countries will be meeting in Madrid this time instead of Santiago and Chile because, as you mentioned, there were some violent protests in Chile and they have been unable to meet. So the importance of this meeting in particular is because there are agenda items that pertain to the Paris Climate Agreement that was agreed in 2015. Some of the agenda items still remain. And the COP is the only place where government, policymakers, academics, NGOs, civil society, scientists all meet and tough decisions will have to be made at the COPs. Usually there is a mid-year meeting where some issues are being discussed, but decisions are made at the end-of-year COPs. So cancellation was really out of the question. They really had to find an alternative location to host this. So is it right to say that a lot of policies that would affect uh, people's daily lives, whether in terms of transport or even dietary choices, maybe could be affected by policies that governments make at these meetings? The COP meetings do send a very strong signal if the decisions are ambitious. So yes, it's very important that governments show up, civil society show up at these meetings so that decisions are kept at the high ambition level in order for us not to suffer the worst effects of climate change. So there have been numerous red blocks in the lead up to this is COP, COP25. And a major one, uh, as you mentioned earlier, was that Chile has announced that due to ongoing protests, it will no longer be able to host this conference. This is the first time that the country has actually said that it will not be able to host the COP. And at this stage, like just one month before, before the meeting was scheduled to be held? Yeah, so COP25 is proving to be very eventful. You know, a year ago, we were told that Brazil would not be able to host and then Chile stepped forward. So it was very, of course, uh, it was a great gesture of the Chileans to step forward. But unfortunately, they were not able to. And as you mentioned, on the 30th of October, they actually pulled out of this agreement. In fact, another summit, the APEC summit, was cancelled at the same time. So it was devastating news, I think, for all of us who have made plans to go to Santiago, Chile. And now Madrid has thankfully stepped forward to host the meeting at the same dates from the 2nd to the 13th of December. So we're all making plans to go to Madrid and to carry on with this conference. So just by way of background, another reason why this new gathering in Madrid is so important. In 2015, representatives from nearly 200 nations gathered in Paris to seal the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. And that agreement set in place targets for nations to meet to limit global warming to below 2 degrees or aim for an aspirational warming of 1.5 degrees. Now, that was the goal. Uh, It didn't spell out very specifically how nations individually should get there. That's been the process of several other meetings since then. So this gathering now in Madrid 
basically is, aims to take that a step forward. Last year we had what was called the uh, Katowice Rulebook, which was agreed in the talks held in Katowice in Poland. That essentially is like an instruction manual as to how to put the Paris Climate Agreement into action. You know, it's a nuts and bolts type of process, and there are still some elements of that that need to be agreed, particularly on, for example, the carbon market or how to use offsets to try to sort of limit warming. So the US itself has also started the process of pulling out of the Paris Accord. It can't do that immediately. There is a complicated process, but that is also a roadblock going forward. It doesn't send a great signal to some countries, particularly at a time when greenhouse gas emissions are yet another record. Warming is continuing to rise. You know, we've had just the world's hottest October on record. We've had terrible wildfires in California, terrible record flooding in Japan. The list goes on and on. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about these roadblocks and why they are significant. Okay, so yes, the US has officially notified the UN of their intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. Of course, this is a setback for all of us. So a year from now, the US will no longer be a party to the Paris Agreement and the rest of the 186 countries will therefore have to share the burden of dealing with climate change. That being said, the US remains the second largest emitter of global greenhouse gas emissions. So without them on board, it would be quite difficult to foresee how we would get there together. The other roadblock, of course, I think is the fact that many advocates for climate action, including academics like myself and civil society members, might not find the chance to reroute some of their travel plans to get to Madrid instead of Santiago. Many of them rely on investments or donations to attend, mm. or and so some of them might be unable to. And the credibility of the COP might be compromised if some civil society members are not there. Every year we get about, I think, 11,000 civil society members and I think many of them will not be able to attend given the last-minute changes to um, the venue. Why is it important that civil society take part in these international discussions? So civil society do provide a form of check on governments who are there represented by their national delegations and it's very important that observers keep track of the process. It's for transparency reasons and many of us also study this in greater detail. It's very difficult for lay people to understand even the Paris Agreement and some of the past treaties as well. And so we take the time to research. And I think it's important for civil society to be able to explain these in plain language. Not that governments don't, but sometimes they do it with interest, right? And also researchers and civil society are able to explain it to various groups in different ways so that we can all take action. So Eric, any thoughts on this matter? As um, Melissa has mentioned, the United States will be withdrawing from the Paris Agreement around this time next year, but they remain an observer in the Paris Agreement discussions and they are still a member of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the parent convention. So this creates a situation in which it's a bit of uh, having your cake and eating it situation in which the US is still able to be part of the conversation, still able to negotiate in the Paris Agreement setting without having to abide by the rules and regulations of the Paris Agreement and is still able to lobby other countries to take positions which are favourable to the US, which may end up watering down some of the Paris Agreement rules and regulations going forward. So I think we do have to be very careful about how the United States participates in these discussions going forward. The other possibility is that the United States also withdraws from the parent convention entirely and leaves the room altogether. Now, on the one hand, that would be a very major blow to the entire climate change negotiation because that means one of the largest emitters will have left the discussion entirely. However, this might also open up the possibility of the other countries in the room to take on more ambitious actions towards tackling climate change. We are already seeing the European Union discussing things like border carbon adjustment taxes, 
we are also seeing um, other developing countries also starting to discuss how they can work together with the EU and other ambitious members in the Framework Convention on Climate Change to deliver more ambitious climate action. So it's all up in the air and could be quite interesting to watch. There is a little bit of hope, of course. The next US election is on November the 3rd. Yes. And if Donald Trump loses and the Democrat wins, then I think very quickly they will halt the process of exiting the Paris Agreement, Mm -hmm. which, um, because Donald Trump's process that he's kick-started, doesn't become final until November the 4th, 2020. So any new president, if it's a Democrat or even Republican, has 24 hours to snatch back that bit of paper. Yes, and if they do snatch back the paper or file another entry notification to the Paris Agreement, then it, that will take force in 30 days. So that's hope. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or even on Spotify and like us and give us a rating. Now, back to our conversation with climate change observers Melissa Lowe and Eric B on the roadblocks that have emerged in the lead-up to the United Nations Climate Change Conference this December. So, during last year's conference, we have already chatted about how parties had agreed on a rule book or a roadmap on how countries can limit Uh, global warming to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. So what is on the agenda this year, Eric? David actually mentioned the Katowice rulebook earlier. The Katowice rulebook is almost complete. The one thing that is not in the Katowice rulebook yet is Article 6, which relates to international cooperation and market mechanisms. So why are market mechanisms important? These market mechanisms, otherwise known as international carbon markets, these are mentioned in 90 of the 190 over state parties' nationally determined contribution. So because of these 90 NDCs discussing the possibility of using market mechanisms, you can see that a lot of countries actually are pinning their hopes on the possibility of a market mechanism being uh, brought to life this year so that they can use it to assist in their mitigation options. So if you look at the 10 ASEAN countries, eight of the countries have actually mentioned that they are looking into how the market mechanism can help them achieve more mitigation options. Only one country has stated they are not interested in using the market mechanism at all and another country has not mentioned them. So you can see that in ASEAN, there's a lot of interest in this as well. So the main issues left on the table that are preventing Article 6 from being completed are 1. The carrying over of old credits from the old Kyoto Protocol Clean Development Mechanism, which certain countries with large number of leftover credits want to carry over but which other countries do not because they fear that it would cause imbalance in the market. And the other issue is the ongoing concerns about human rights and how these projects in the new market mechanism also interact with the other sustainable development goals, including um, goals like biodiversity as well as on circular economy. So in other words, is it right to say that Article 6 discussions essentially pivots around the availability of a global market for countries to buy carbon credits to offset their emissions so they can actually achieve their targets? Yes, that is one thing that it does. But another thing that is important Article 6 is that it also allows countries to also bypass the market and create their own um, agreements to exchange mitigation outcomes between each other as well. So this could be in terms of linking up their national carbon markets, which Singapore has already stated its interest in doing so in the future, or in terms of directly buying certain mitigation outcomes from another country. So all these mechanisms are very important for countries in terms of how they want to make climate action truly global. So just again, by way of a bit of background, so by offsetting emissions, so some examples could be forest preservation, saving rainforests, 
forests soak up a lot of carbon, but you need to make sure the forest is standing and protecting it. So there are processes in which you can measure emissions that are basically stored in a forest. It also gives forests an extra value so they don't get cut down. Another type of project could be uh, investing in renewable energy, which, as Eric mentioned, this uh, clean development mechanism under the UN, that's exactly what it did. It helped compensate early movers for investing in projects that soaked up methane from pig and chicken farms as well, for example, and using that as a, as a power source, as well as investing in wind farms and solar farms. So there are lots of imaginative ways to cut emissions, and some nations struggle to do it at home, but it's possible to fund other nations to invest and develop these processes, because ultimately, if you take out carbon dioxide in one place, it doesn't really matter because it's all one atmosphere. The other thing to mention is, and the UN loves its acronyms, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Now, they've released a series of special reports, and they are basically all quite special, literally. These all have had quite far-reaching awareness in terms of opening up the threats from climate change, but then also the opportunities. They've exposed real far-reaching effects on systems that are near and dear to humans, be it food, be it oceans, ice-covered parts of the planet, pretty iconic sort of stuff from melting glaciers in the Himalayas. And just this week, and in fact overnight, more than 11,000 scientists, and not just climate scientists, but scientists of all stripes, banded together in saying that the Earth was facing a climate emergency, you know, and not just from the usual indicators of warming temperatures, or rising sea levels, or melting ice, it's also indicators from consumption. So record numbers of people travelling by plane, aviation emissions, record meat consumption, emissions from agriculture, record fossil fuel use, which is just adding literally fuel to the climate emergency. So will the warnings from scientists again further underscore the urgency in setting up carbon markets and give this COP in Madrid an extra kick? I think we still have to go back to the reality of the negotiations in which the state parties, each of them have their own national interest to defend and they are mostly interested in the monetary value and gains that they can get out of the market because it is a market, so that's the most important thing. So these reports, yes, it will add some background to what is being negotiated but at the end of the day, most countries already have a national position to defend that has been with them for quite a few years, since at least 2015. So I don't foresee many countries moving very much in terms of how they are going to approach these negotiations this year. What about from the civil society perspective, do you think they would um, use the science and recent events that have affected uh, countries, especially developing countries around the world, as some kind of a bargaining tool or using it as leverage to urge countries to show greater ambition? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I have to respectfully disagree with Eric, actually, because I think governments are taking these reports seriously. I mean, they approved it, right, in the summary of po- for policymakers. And um, ultimately, I would like to point out that there is a window of opportunity right now for countries to resubmit their nationally determined contributions or climate pledges. So the last set of pledges were submitted in 2014-15, just before Paris. And so this is currently a time where countries are re-looking at their targets. They want to make it more ambitious. There's a ratcheting up mechanism in the Paris Agreement. So this is the time to publish this sort of work, you know, because you want to be able to have the science inform policymakers and governments to ratchet up ambition. The other thing that is on the table, maybe not for this year, but definitely next year, is the low emissions development strategies. You may have heard this. Um, The National Climate Change Secretariat recently held a public consultation on this. So it's the 2050 plans. And governments are expected to put forward 2050 plans by next year as well. Well, thank you both for joining us for this very interesting discussion. That's a wrap for Green Pulse and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you. Thanks.
That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.